Happy Saturday. It's February 24th, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we've got a great episode of Morning Meeting and a fantastic issue of Airmail. We've got lots to discuss, Michael, from the award shows in Hollywood to the streets of Moscow. Where shall we begin? Yeah, we've got a great show. As you know, it's been a week now since the Russian opposition leader and political prisoner Alexei Navalny died in a remote prison in the Arctic Circle. And Katya V will join us with her report on how those in inside Russia who oppose Putin plan to go forward. And then Nicholas Griffin will join us with the inspiring story of Rachel Silverstein, a determined environmentalist who took on some of Florida's most powerful players and won. And finally, the always entertaining man of style, George Hahn, has answers to your burning style questions, including one Ashley, I'm eager to know about, has Joe Biden made aviator sunglasses uncool? So Ashley, where would you like to begin this week? Well, Michael, let's start with the newsiest of the newsy, Katya V from Moscow, I think. Katya is a young woman living in Moscow. That's really all we're going to say about her, but she is on the streets there and can report on the national mood. Welcome, Katya. Katya, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Michael and Ashley. Thank you for inviting me here. So Katya, what's the mood like in Moscow right now? It's a little bit like the beginning of the war in Ukraine when everybody was so alert and innerly mobilized. And it was very intense emotionally, but you couldn't say anything in public. And you had to pretend that everything is all right well in public. And nowadays, after the news about death of Alexei Navalny were issued, everything became a little bit like that. So people are emotionally burdened. They are stressed and many are depressed and angry and want to do something. But as now we have a whole pack of repressive laws. It's difficult and dangerous to protest in public in any way. So it feels like a trauma suppressed. Just you see this whole trauma of millions of people in Russia suppressed near your eyes. Now, Katya, when the news of Navalny's death was reported, there was some uncertainty as to whether or not he was actually dead or what was going on. How was that news reported in the Russian media? There was an announcement on the site of the prison where he was kept lately. There were moments in which Navalny was like lost. Nobody knew where he was because he was juggled between different prisons ending up in a prison in the far north where he was killed, so it seems now. And then that prison just issued an announcement on their official site. Their convict with that name was dead after a walk. Yeah. They just said that he went back to his cell after a walk and suddenly felt unwell. And then he was dead. That's how it was worded on that official site. And after that, nobody knows where Navalny's body is. Nobody knows the exact reason of his death. There is no coherent official narrative about it. All different official sources contradict each other on this point. But everybody agrees that, yes, she must be really dead. 
There are no mystifications or conspiracy theories about it now. There are only a lot of suspicions about what killed him and his mother is not given his body. Now, Katya, there's also a lot of conversation about who's going to step in to fill the void, the leadership void for Navalny's followers. And obviously his wife has been quite vocal in recent days. What are you hearing from friends of yours, supporters of Navalny, people on the ground in Russia? What do they think the hope for the future is of this movement? It's difficult to say, but the whole attitude among people who oppose Putin in Russia and whom I know is it's ambivalent towards many people who were around Navalny, who were in his crew. I think that his wife is mainly supported. Most people I know like her and sympathize with her, but not everybody from that circle of politicians that was formed around Navalny is trusted as much. And I know that people in Russia are generally very much ironic and probably spiteful and discontent about those politicians abroad who claim to represent the opposition in Russia, but just rants, meet European politicians and have coffee breaks with each other. So probably people in Russia that I know need more like horizontal systems of support more probably initiatives of adaptation for Russian emigrants, for example, abroad, or more people who go out of Russian prison because they are for a political wars. So probably we need more like charities and more systematic approaches to problems that we have than we need new charismatic leaders. And I say that all my due respect to Alexei Navalny. He was very, very highly respected by many energetic and charismatic leader, but probably we don't need any more of them because that's not what really works in the end. Well, that's my opinion. So Katya, do you think there's room for a new resistance leader in the Navalny vein to come up or are people too scared? What's the sentiment like? How important is the fear factor here? There is fear in Russian resistance today, and it's uh, completely understandable because it's not just fear, it's efficiency. Because if we do anything too risky right now, it will just be inefficient. Just people's lives and resources will be wasted. So we probably have to reorganize the resistance to be more like underground and well-managed and not just about emotions, but about systemic actions. Some people feel like, did the West do enough to keep the focus on Navalny? And now, after his death, some people are, what is the West's response? Some people are saying, like, they should declare Putin an illegitimate government and not deal with him. What would you and your colleagues in the resistance like to see from the West that would give you hope and support and perhaps put some sort of pressure on Putin? That's a very challenging question. I really have to think about it and I don't know what to say. Thank you for that question, Michael, because not many people ask what we need. I don't think that I can be any spokesperson for anybody in Russian resistance because 
I'm no leader. I don't have such responsibilities. But I think that media coverage of not just some like very hyped up and very well heard stories, yeah, like media coverage of political prisoners who are not as famous, who were not as successful at some points in life as Navalny was. Well, probably when I see that, it feels great to have it. Yeah. In other words, it seems a little bit like maybe that period in the 70s when the Western media kept a very steady focus on the dissidents within the Soviet Union at that point, And there was a range of people. Probably a little bit like that. I'm sorry if the things that I say sometimes contradict probably the whole mood of my essay about Navalny, but these are different things. Yeah. What, in my opinion, and from what I hear, feels needed in Russia now and the sentiment towards Navalny. I personally liked him very much and I worked for him for some years. And I feel now like one of my father figures is gone. That is a huge deal. But he also seems to um, constitute more like the spirit of Russian opposition movement in the 2010s which is a little bit over now. So there needs to be a next generation, a next evolution. Yeah, there certainly is a new generation of Russian resistance. And we can only hope that it is going to be like concentrated on people's trouble now, as much as Valny struggled to concentrate on how he perceived the sorrow of Russian people 10 years ago. Not many things can be done in Russia right now, but some very systemic but quiet sabotage. I don't know, teaching your children, not teaching children at school the same amount of propaganda that you have to be teaching them there. Some people, of course, take part in more like war-related sabotage, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. So there are different things that can be done, but not many of them. And there is much despair and there is very, very, very little hope among everybody I know. But we're still alive and uh, I still like to be living, to be honest. And I even still like to be living in Russia. I think we go on. Well, Katya, thank you so much for your incredible story and also your journalism. It's increasingly difficult to hear voices like yours. So we really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, Michael and Ashley. It was great talking to you today. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you, Katya. God, that's a harrowing tale. Yeah. Don't think we've seen the last card played and it's going to get more complicated, I'm sure. Okay, Miami, Michael. It is not just for hype beasts, MAGA types, and tax evaders anymore. We have a fascinating story out of Miami that gets at really the heart of what this city is all about right now. Yes, indeed. It's a fantastic, I think a very inspiring story about a woman named Rachel Silverstein who took on super entrenched forces and made an environmental impact of a positive kind for once. And it's written by Nicholas Griffin, who is author of several books, including The Year of Dangerous Days, Riots, Refugees, and Cocaine in Miami, 1980. Welcome, Nick. 
Thanks for having me. So, Nick, you've got kind of a modern day Aaron Brockovich story out of Miami. Tell us about this central character in your piece. Yep. Her name is Rachel Silverstein. She started life as a PhD in marine biology, specializing in corals. And about 10 years ago, she was on day number four in her brand new job where she was the sole employee of an organization called the Miami Waterkeeper. When she got a phone call from the New York Times asking her if there was something odd going on off the coast of Miami, where there was a big dredge project going on, where supposedly things were going swimmingly well. But according to what would later unfold, things weren't going very well at all. In fact, there was a huge, huge environmental issue going on that basically no one had figured out was happening. How did she get involved in this mess in the first place? Rachel Silverstein had been studying corals all over the world as a PhD student. And then she decided to take on this job back where she'd actually won her PhD in Miami. So what had happened was having received this call from the New York Times and they'd asked her if there was something odd going on, she went out and really the only way she knew how to do this was to go out and start the dive herself. The number one reason she had to do that was because she was the only employee. There was no one else to rely on. So what she did was sort of bootstrap. She sort of borrowed a boat, borrowed a captain, got a couple of friends from her PhD program together, and they went out to discover what was happening during this dredge project. Now, dredge projects are sort of vast and necessary in port towns. And what's happened in Miami is you've got the largest passenger port in the world there. You've now got an incredible amount of container ships coming through, and those container ships have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So in order to get them up into the port Miami, you've got to dig every now and then. Now, in theory, there's a lot of coral. There's a lot of endangered coral around there. So in theory, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who are in charge of the project, take very measured actions and try to protect what they have to protect. And that they were doing exactly what they said they were doing. They were supposed to be an independent environmental monitor, checking that everything was okay. And they had tagged certain corals. Biologists would go and dive and make sure these corals were still okay. And the reports coming out was that everything was just fine. But other people had begun to think things weren't fine because these enormous clouds of silt were moving around outside of the port of Miami. And things look, corals are living beings. Just like us, if you put 10 feet of soil on top of us, we're not going to breathe. We're certainly not going to procreate. And same way with corals, even if you put a few inches of silt on top of corals, they're not going to breathe or survive either. And corals are absolutely vital to both the health of the marine system, but they're also vital to the health of the city. Why? Because coral reefs protect cities like Miami. I mean that from a hurricane perspective. Hurricanes are the biggest dangers we have down here. A healthy coral reef can take away 97% of wave energy. So it's absolutely vital that it's protected. So what happens then after she does this dive and she discovers what the U.S. Corps of Army Engineering is saying versus what she's discovered, right? So when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers final report comes out, basically says that of the 226 corals they've tagged and have been monitoring over the course of the dredge, there have been six that have died. And that gets picked up by the media that don't worry, this has been going on for a while, but only six, six corals have died. But the way the report is phrased is slightly disingenuous because you're only looking at that 228. They were in certain places. Certain places weren't even monitored at all. So when she does her own comparison of data to what the Army Corps of Engineers have put up and she goes to look at other places they're not really monitoring, she finds out that it's not six corals that are dead. It's a minimum of 560,000. And that's the conservative. There are other biologists out there who say it's well over a million. So the damage was incredibly significant. And the other thing that happens 
is that exactly the same time the dredge pretty much stops, you get this virus, let's say it's sort of the marine equivalent of COVID, that starts in exactly the same place that the dredge has happened, extremely close by. And that's a virus, well, we still don't know if it's a virus or even a bacterium, and we can't prove that it's tied to the dredge. But we do know that it spreads from that all across the Caribbean. And the theory is that that virus moves more quickly when corals were covered in silt, and that accelerates the process. And that has now killed millions upon millions of corals across the Caribbean. And along with all the warm water issues that are happening, it is not a good time to be a coral. So then they start to get into lawsuits with this. How much damage was really done in terms of dollars and the impact on the port? Yeah, as far as dollars go, I mean, the project itself was about a $150, $180 million project. The the suit has ended up with a sum of well over $400 million in order to try and rebuild the reef. But rebuilding the reef is, is a very easy thing to say and a very hard thing to do. So what I like about what Miami Water Keeps is suggesting is let's press pause for a second. Traditionally, rebuilding reefs is basically dumping tons of boulders over where healthy reef once was and then crossing your fingers. But what Miami Water Keepers wants to do is use a lot of that money towards coral restoration programs and really try and make Miami the epicenter of how to try and figure out how to make corals grow fast in tricky places. So that's really what we're hoping to see over the next few years in Miami rather than just dumping those boulders. And Nick, she started as a one woman. So she now has Miami Waterkeepers has a staff of 18 people now? Yeah, they grew to 18. And then I think this year they've just added another six. So it is a rapidly expanding organization. It's still run on a relative shoestring budget. But when you consider that first coral win, you wish it was double its size. Already. What's next for her? Where is she turning her attention after bringing attention to the devastation of the coral and helping rebuild that? Sure. Well, the next big issue that came to Miami Waterkeepers' attention was that a lot of Miami's power comes from a nuclear power facility about 25 miles south of the city. And that's run by Florida Power and Light, which is the largest utility company in America. They started looking at the reports that Florida Power and Light had submitted an application to extend the lifetime of that plant. It was a build that was finished in 1973. It was supposed to be closed soon, and they wanted to extend it to 2052. And she was looking at the, that application, and she realized that they had ignored the federal government's suggested sea level rise numbers. And they had basically created their own sea level rise numbers. And they were very, very rosy indeed. And what she'd realized that even if you took the most modest sea level rise numbers by the middle of the century, that you were going to have pretty much everything except the plant itself covered by frequent flooding. So that included nuclear waste storage, that included all the roads. So how are people even going to get in and out of that? So this was a real problem. So together with a couple of other environmental groups, she decided to approach the NRC and try and get them to change their minds about extending this potential extension. And when she goes before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, what happens? Well, there's pretty much silence. There's silence and then the application is accepted and FBL is given permission to extend that. And there's an appeal, then that's followed by more silence. And then there's an awful lot of waiting. And what Miami Waterkeeper wanted them to do is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had basically had this one-size-fits-all mandate that whatever's good for one nuclear power plant in America must be good for another. And that might have made sense way back at the dawn of the nuclear age. But in the current climate change, you can definitely make the argument that each one of America's nuclear facilities is facing different challenges. And so what they were asking for is for each one to be considered on its own terms. And that was greeted with absolute silence. And then, extraordinarily enough, instead of having to extend the appeal, for the first time in the existence of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in America, they reversed that decision. And basically, the whole process has been pressed, paused on. And now the idea is that each 
nuclear plant in America will have to be considered on its own when it comes to confronting the new challenges of changing climate. Nick, yeah, on that note, I mean, Miami is more vulnerable than many other American cities due to climate change. How do you see that impacting Silverstein's work and focus? Well, I, basically, I mean, Miami Water Keep is basically and it's, a, it's an endless punch list and, and water, water is Miami's biggest attraction and it's also its biggest threat. I mean, 80% of all tourists interact with water, whether they swim or they go fishing or whatever it is. But at the same time, with sea level rise, I live in Miami. I mean, it's we have our flood our flood warnings come through so regularly. You can entertain yourself if you want to go and watch a Crypto Bros Lamborghini float down Brickle. Don't worry, it'll happen several times a year. Uh, so you know, it's I mean, rising water is one issue. The more immediate threat is is heated water. So we broke temperature records all across South Florida last summer, and some of the waters just south of Miami got to 101 degrees. That puts enormous pressure on the marine ecosystem. So that's a big issue. It's enormous pressure on the coral system. So that's probably the biggest thing they have. I mean, they're at the moment, they do sort of emergency measures. So hot water means less oxygen. Pollution in the bay, another big issue, can start these fish kills. So we've certainly had some huge fish kills over the last few years where you wake up in your $20 million waterfront home and you want to go paddle boarding. But guess what? You're looking at a sea of dead fish. So that's happened several times as well. So they can do emergency stuff like request to use fireboats to pump water in to sort of start generating oxygen. But a lot of this is pretty like sticking fingers in different cracks in a dike. We need a bit more long-term thinking. And thankfully, Waterkeeper is one of the people who are really making the county, holding them to account and making people do some long-term thinking about Miami's resiliency. Well, Nick, it's a fascinating story. And something tells me this is not the last we're going to hear from Miami Waterkeepers and hopefully from you on the matter. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, guys. Michael, where's Joan Rivers when you need her? It used to be that it was the women who were dressing ridiculously in hopes of getting attention from the fashion police. But no, now today men want in on the fun too. And they are going to increasingly extreme measures to rack up those column inches and get that attention on social media. And George Hahn, our rule of three columnist, is here to make sense of it all. Welcome, George. Hello, Ashley. Okay, George, great column this week, but I was really distressed, or maybe it was I was really heartened by your take on the aviator glasses. Now, it's one of the most important questions of our time. Have the Bidens ruined aviators for the rest of us? The short answer, Ashley, is no, they have not. Here's the why. They're classics, really. I think of the aviators as like Levi's 501s, the white t-shirt, the denim jacket, a classic. They're never going to be wrong. Is there anyone else kind of in the universe of style that has adopted this moment? I can't think of anybody who's really popping for me right now. Of course, there's Joe. Hunter is wearing them as well. That's what came up in the conversation with this friend of mine who was distressed. He thought that Joe and Hunter Biden have ruined them for him, which is a perspective I vehemently disagree with. And the argument being these people have sort of taken the aviator, our beloved aviators, as a branding and sort of use them as their own brand. And I'm sort of of the mind, who cares? Aviators are so ubiquitous, fashion or rather style history, they're not going anywhere. I like the suggestion you make in your column. It's like, if you're on the fence about aviators and that look and Joe Biden's not your guy, maybe 
dial it up a little more recently and get, think of as you know George Michael on MTV in his faith look, right? I mean, which is mm-hmm. if that's a little more sort of in one's wheelhouse as a style inspiration, right? Okay, gentlemen. Now that we've addressed the extremely important matter of aviators, let's move on to the red carpet because it is award season in the world of Hollywood, actually all around the world, and we have seen some truly insane looks, not just on the women but also on the gentlemen. And this is relatively new. I mean, I remember back, I guess it was maybe 2017. George, remember when Donald Glover wore that brown? velvet Gucci tuxedo. I think it was to the Golden Globes and it was so chic and it was simply brown velvet. It was a normal tuxedo, but this was like front page news all over the world. Now that would be considered kind of a boring red carpet look among the men. I mean, what is going on? Can you guys make sense of this? I have my own theories, which I think I tried to touch upon in the piece this week. Women have typically dominated the red carpet in terms of splash, in terms of designer moments, fashion moments, which is the term I'm looking for. Fashion moments has typically been the domain of women on the red carpet. And now the guys want to get in on it. As I said, it's not enough that they get more roles and a bigger paycheck. Now they want to elbow and muscle in on the action on the red carpet. And I don't know if it's the celebrities, the male celebrities themselves, their stylists or both. I don't know. Are they bored? Do they not think a regular tuxedo is enough or something? I will call out a name. Most recently, we had the BAFTA Awards in London. Bradley Cooper, who has often shown up on the red carpet looking devastatingly handsome. Tom Ford Fair. It could be a double-breasted or a single-breasted peak lapel. And he looks great. At the BAFTAs, I don't know who he was wearing. Now Bradley wants fashion moments. And I just kind of go, huh? George, I'm just going to, as you did in your column so beautifully, you put a fine point on it. We've sort of gone from, as you note, from Rent the Runway to Rent the Rent Boys here. That there's this look, you note, I mean, you apparently no longer need a shirt. Right. The bow tie is dead. Let's get that out of the The way. The bow tie was gone. And then they took the shirt. And now they've taken the sleeves off the jacket as well. So, which, again, it's all fashion. And I'm sure there's lots of money to be made if you can get an endorsement for these things. But, like, I've gone speechless. I've gone speechless. I turn it back to you. I turn it back to you, George. We're seeing a lot of skin for some reason. This looks like the red carpet to the hooker's ball. These guys look like they're commanding about $1,000 a night or more for a sleepover. This looks like the hooker's ball. What we're seeing are guys who are typically not fashiony personalities who somehow need, they're really bloodthirsty for a fashion moment. And then the hookerization of it with the sleeves and the chest, it's like, guys, I don't need to see your tits. Why are we cheapening this? So, yeah. Did I blow your mind? (laughs) Hooker's Ball or maybe the Adult Entertainment Video Awards out in Vegas. But (laughs) It's got that kind of a flavor, but like a high fashion version of that. A very expensive Hooker's Ball. Oscars are coming up. It's going to be high peacock season. And God only knows what the stylists are thinking and what the actors are not thinking. Because clearly they're just in the hands of people who tell them what to wear. But honestly, Michael, let me throw it back to you. Do you think this is coming from the celebrities themselves or the stylists or both? It's not just the effect of women on the runway and they want their moment, but you have to remember the women, many of these women get paid when they wear an outfit, right? And it's why you see now they have a red carpet look, they have an after party look, and they often have a going home look. Those are three dresses. They get paid three times in one night. Now, if you are top name guy who's a nominated, whether it's Killian Murphy or Brandon Keegan or Bradley Cooper, you've got the houses coming to you and say like, with your stylist, they'll wear something and they'll get paid for that. In most cases. So it's driving that. And it's, look, I don't begrudge anyone for making money, but the houses obviously want you wearing that season's trend, that season's look. So it's complicated. With women, it's a little different. 
in my eye, but with the men, it is so transparent that they did not dress themselves. It looks completely inorganic, like the clothes are wearing them. Of course, like I say, I don't begrudge anyone wanting to represent what's on point and trend. But as you and I know, like what's the difference between looking stylish or being a fashion victim? There's a line and you can look great on the red carpet and still be in style. George, look, if either one of you guys show up at dinner, even if you're showing lots of skin, I'm still going to be delighted to see you. Thank you for this great conversation and your insights into what on earth is going on inside these guys' heads. Thank you so much. And I know that there are going to be some like tomatoes thrown at me for being some crotchety old man like tuxedos. Ugh, them times is past, old man. And now they're trying to move on and be all young and get jiggy with the kids. And I just can't deal with it. (laughs) George, we can't wait for your next column. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you very soon. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thank you, George. There's only one place to discover a global snapshot of the current cultural scene. Airmail's Arts Intel Report, our international research tool for what to do and where and when to do it, is user-friendly, continuously updated and meticulously curated. Arts Intel is handy at home, on the road and when you're planning your next trip. It also includes indispensable listed restaurants and hotels in key cities around the world, recommended by our well-traveled experts. Explore Arts Intel at airmail.news slash arts hyphen intel and be sure to sign up for our weekly culture newsletter, which is published every Wednesday afternoon at ml.news/wic. I'm Chris Garrett, ML Deputy Editor, and I never leave home without it. Bon voyage. Well, Michael, I'm glad George said that, so we didn't have to. Exactly. Get a scorecard out for the red carpet and for Oscars and see who should go to fashion jail and who should not go to fashion jail. The crazier all this stuff becomes, the more I just want to wear a button up shirt and chinos every day. Seriously. Like, I feel like my style, like the crazier it gets out there in the world, the more boring I become. I think the only reason guys probably don't want to wear a shirt with their tuxedo is it's just easier if you, when you spill soup on your chest, it's no longer staining your shirt. You just wipe it off. You don't have to pay the dry cleaner. So there's one advantage to it. I like that. It's a money-saving technique. It's like, who's to blame for this? Is it Timothy Chalamet? Like, there's got to be somebody responsible, but watch it. Just like everything else, fashion has huge swings. I'm sure it'll just be moments again where everyone is wearing a black tux and that's it. Tell me, it is the weekend. We need to veg out in front of the television and forget all of our problems. What do you have to recommend? Well, before we veg out in front of the television, I have a restaurant I've been to recently and I want to just share it because I think you would love it. Have you heard of Coca Doc? This is so funny. Yes, we have a story about it coming out actually in next week's issue. Spoiler alert. Yes, I've heard it's great, great fun. Tell me everything. Okay, we can read all about it next week, but I'll give you a little tip because Brooke and I went there. It's one of New York's hottest restaurants, as Stefan might say, but it did not disappoint. Why? Because if you're like me, you know one thing you can find in this city? It's got everything, but you know you can never find, actually? Amazing fried chicken. And this place has it. It's the brainchild of Simon Kim, who owns Coat that super hot Korean steakhouse. And the idea is really super simple. It's like you get fried chicken and pretty much nothing else. Except if you want to get caviar on your fried chicken, you can do that. I've got some amazing sides, but it's fantastic. It's fun. And because fried chicken, I've decided, makes everyone happy. And it's no surprise that the vibe here is great. Food, it makes for an awesome night. And it doesn't hurt that there's also a super great wine list, as I saw. So it's called Coca Doc. It's on 12 East 22nd in the Flatiron District here in New York City. And we'll have more for you all next week with a big story in the issue. Love it. You're always ahead of the game, Michael. I was just hungry. I needed a good date night place. Okay, well, in similar news this week, you're going to be envious. I'm just telling you. I was a guinea pig 
for our friend Jeremy King, who is opening up the Arlington, his new restaurant in St. James here in London at long last. All I can tell you is it's even better than we expected. And we had very high expectations. Jeremy, as you'll recall, is the restaurant tour behind. The Ivy when it was good, not now. It's like TGI Fridays. He also founded the Wolseley. Jay Shiki, he owned for a while. I mean, Brasserie Zadell, like this guy is the king of London restaurants. He had a big falling out with his partners and he is finally back, baby. We did a story about it in Airmail a few weeks ago. And the Arlington is spectacular. It's in the site of the old priests in St. James. James on Arlington Street. God, the inside's gorgeous. It's so elegant. It feels so special and great to be there. I mean, this is a reason to go out and eat at a restaurant and spend money. And it's expensive to go out to eat anymore. I think it really has to like prove its case and make it worth your while. And this place definitely delivers. So it's not fully open yet. I was just a guinea pig there weighing in on the dishes and being extremely picky and persnickety, just like Jeremy likes. But yeah, it's going to be definitely the hot opening of London this season. And when you come to town, you and I are definitely going there. We are going to love it. Okay. But Michael, we have to talk about one thing. I'm so sorry. Are you watching the new look? I Yes, I've watched it. Brooke and I have watched three episodes of it. Tell me what you love about it. Okay, first of all, it's basically, I mean, is there a more airmail show? It's like fashion, World War II, occupied France. There's not. I'm sorry. Like, these are our core competencies right here. I don't know. Look, I am a sucker for this fashion history, like this particular era of fashion history, because... One, I love the clothes. And two, it's one of those rare moments where like fashion and world events intersect in a really meaningful way. So I love it. I also never really knew the full story of Christian Dior and what he endured during World War II. So it's a fantastic revelation on, and to see, as they say, a backstory and the, what he went through Nazi occupation of Paris. That is terrific. You're exactly right. The weaving of history, fashion, world events, Paris in the war. It's great. Sometimes I find it a little slow to get started and I want a little more movement, but it's well done. The show is called The New Look and it's about Coco Chanel and Christian Dior and their travails during World War II and how they created modern fashion in the years afterward. You can watch it on Apple TV. Okay, Michael, thank you. Love talking to you as always. Thank you all so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. Our deputies are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.